Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Adele Walton, stepping in for Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. Over the next few weeks, I'll be discussing some key issues around international development. This week, I speak to Heidi Chow, Executive Director at Jubilee Debt Campaign, which works to end poverty, inequality and exploitation caused by unjust debt. Today, Heidi and I discuss the neo-colonial nature of debt and how it reproduces global inequality and poverty. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want access to full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now, here is Heidi Chow on why it is so important for us to unite against debt. Hello Heidi, thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, Yeah, it's great to be on your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. Um, So firstly, I would like to ask you, when it comes to campaigning for social justice, why is it so important that we rally collectively against debt? Well, um, the issue of debt has um, played a role in creating and sustaining poverty and inequality across the world. And and debt has also been used to create a global economy that's been organised in the interests of corporations and Western governments. And we see this in the debt crisis of the 1980s to 1990s, where debt was created in the interests of banks and northern governments. And it was used as a way to control global South economies and impose on them a set of economic policies that keep them underdeveloped, essentially locking them into poverty and widening global inequality. And then in the 1990s, early 2000s, there was a global movement for debt cancellation, the Jubilee 2000 movement, which is where the organisation I work for, Jubilee Debt Campaign, has finds its origins. The Jubilee movement managed to win $130 billion worth of debt cancellation. Um, wow. And even though this was a massive victory, actually the structures that created debt in the first place um, are still firmly in place. And so many Global South countries continue to stay locked in an extractive economic system, which was created through through colonialism, but it's now maintained through structures that enable corporations to continue to evade and avoid paying taxes, that forces unfair trade rules on the global south, allows corporate power to grow and have more control over the economies of the global south and and see repatriation of profits from shareholders uh, to the global north. So all of this means that the global south economies are still based around raw material extraction and low value manufacturing, which means that there are massive financial outflows to the global north. And so Global South, our countries are forced to rely on debt for their public finance. So this all means that Global South countries are structurally predisposed to unsustainable debt levels. And all it takes is an external shock to plunge countries into debt crisis. Uh, So that's why at the start of the pandemic, 54 countries were already in a debt crisis. They were paying more in debt repayments than they were on healthcare and social, social protection. And the climate crisis is also exacerbating the debt crisis now. Mm -hmm. 
So the issue of debt is so interconnected with the fight for a fair global economy, but also deeply connected with the fight against neocolonialism and the fight for climate justice. Um, And so that's why I think it's really important that we join the dots and we see debt justice as a key part in the struggle for racial justice, climate justice and economic justice. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one voice that I know that you've spoken about before who's very vocal on this is has been Thomas Sankara and for Jacobin you recently wrote about you know his resilient campaign against debt can you tell us a bit more about why his ideas were so influential and in terms of thinking about the neo-colonial nature of debt when we are looking at development and social development Yeah, so Thomas Sankara came to power in 1983 in Burkina Faso, and he was president for just four years before he was assassinated. Um, He came to power in the middle of the global self debt crisis of the 1980s, when debt came to be used as an incredibly convenient and effective way to maintain the economic power of the global north. So so the debt crisis of the 1980s was created by loans that were given out liberally in the 1970s by Western banks, because Western banks were awash with petrodollars following the OPEC crisis and the oil price hikes. And some of these loans were given to dictators with no democratic accountability. Some of these loans were used as a weapon of the Cold War by both sides to prop up dictators that, that they saw as allies. Mm. And then in the 1980s, the commodity prices fell. Um, and so these countries, even though they were now independent, actually they were still dependent on exporting raw materials to the global north as they were set up to do so during colonialism. And so in the 1980s, they started facing the prospect of earning less money from their commodities um, and then the US pop interest rates. And so because the loans were in dollars, it meant that debt payments went up just as their income went down. Mm. So this triggered off a, a debt crisis in many countries. Mexico was the first country to default, and then Brazil and Argentina as a debt crisis took hold across the global south. Now, US banks should have taken a loss. They should have taken a hit at this point. But if they did that, it would mean bankruptcy and losses to the Western financial system. And so instead, they lobbied the US government to force Mexico and and these other countries to keep repaying Western banks. And the way they did that was to lend them more money through the IMF and the World Bank. And a really interesting point here is that the IMF and the World Bank were not actually set up to do this. They were The IMF was set up to lend to countries during a temporary crisis, but not for an underlying sort of structural economic problem. Um, the World Bank was set up to lend for actual projects, for example, things like infrastructure, But because both of these institutions were controlled by the global north, they were then able to be repurposed to lend to countries, to to lend money essentially to pay debts. And so in this move to to force Mexico to keep repaying, uh, essentially the uh, rich governments colluded to reshape the global financial system in a way to maintain their own economic power. And of course, this is not the worst part of it. It does. I'm so sorry, mm-hmm. it gets worse because as part of these IMF and World Bank loans, um, something called structural adjustment programs are imposed. Yeah. These are a set of economic policies that countries receiving loans were forced to implement. 
And, you know, the rhetoric was, oh, you need to introduce these policies because it will help you pay back your debts to us. So they forced on these countries uh, austerity. So that's basically cutting public expenditure on things like health and education, public services. They forced um, a policy of privatisation, so selling off nationalised industries to the private sector. And the idea behind this was, was that these two things cutting public expenditure and selling off nationalised industries would raise cash for debt repayments. But in other words, what they were really doing was actually putting repayment before people's basic needs. They also introduced liberalisation and deregulation. So liberalisation is sort of cutting trade tariffs. It means opening up um, markets to foreign competitors, abolishing things like capital controls so money can flow in and out freely into countries. And then deregulation is about cutting regulations on things like labour and environment um, in order to attract foreign investment. But the idea was that these sorts of policies would um, help these countries grow their way out of debt to kind of gear their economies, reorientate their economies for export so they could earn um, foreign currency to repay their debts. But actually, the totality of these policies was actually to keep global South countries underdeveloped. Mm. Um, and instead, all that happened was that the uh, multinational corporations increased in their power and their dominance in these countries, and essentially preventing global South countries from developing the same way that northern countries had developed. Yeah, The very tools that countries like the US and the UK and European countries used to become wealthy in the 18th, 19th centuries were no longer, you know, were no longer available for global South countries to use. And across Latin America, Africa, these policies, these one size fits all prescription meant that actually economy shrank and ultimately debt just kept increasing. And, you know, Thomas Sankara kind of recognised all of this. He saw mm. how uh, actually the IMF World Bank loans and their conditions were actually just another form of colonialism, another form yeah. of economic control. Um, and so he described the the, the, the the officials at IMF and World Bank as technical assassins um, mm. because they were now coming at them instead of wearing, you know, instead of with their sort of guns and military, they were now coming with their suits and their briefcases. And so debt became used as a much more efficient way to control the global south, certainly more compared to, you know, uh, backing messy coups or or torturing people or propping up dictators as they had done before. And then, yeah, and then Thomas Sankara basically called on countries to not pay their debts as a way of resisting the way the role that debt was was being used in their in their countries to control their economies. He had a famous quote, which was, debt cannot be repaid first, because if we don't repay, lenders will not die. Mm -hmm. That is for sure. But if we repay, we are going to die. That is also for sure. And, you know, his very vocal opposition to the role of debt and to the role of IMF and the World Bank um, meant that it's widely suspected that the French government backed his assassination because mm. they were so alarmed by his anti-imperial rhetoric and his rejection of debt and, and just calling out the way that debt was being used, that it was being used as this neo-colonial project um, of the global north. You know, would you say that because of the interests of Western governments being upheld by the global system of debt that we have now, is that the predominant reason for the hesitancy that we see for global leaders from the global north to critique debt in a systemic way? 
Yeah, so it's it's interesting actually because when the pandemic hit last year, we were actually quite surprised that the leaders of the G20 countries actually responded quite quickly to the debt crisis. They introduced um, the Debt to Service Suspension Initiative, um, and it was a, basically a scheme to temporarily suspend the debt payments of seventy three lower income countries as a way, as I guess, recognizing that the, the pandemic had triggered off a, a, a global South debt crisis, uh, what exacerbated it actually because it was already there before the pandemic even began. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so even though actually we were impressed at the speed of their response, actually we're, we're not so impressed with how the scheme itself actually works um, because the initiative doesn't actually include all countries that need the debt suspension, uh, the debt service suspension. It also doesn't include or mandate the involvement of private creditors. So these are commercial banks and investment funds. It also doesn't include institutional investors, investor institutional lenders like the World Bank and IMF. And, and so without including the World Bank and IMF and private lenders, the scheme has only actually suspended less than a quarter of debt payments up till now. And so it's just really become a bit of a bailout program for private lenders because the debt suspension that has taken place from governments has just basically freed up money to enable global South countries to keep paying back banks and hedge funds during the pandemic. Mm. And the other problem, the debt suspension scheme, is that it only suspends debt. Um, actually, all of that debt that's been suspended will actually come due eventually when the, when the scheme finishes. Um, and it doesn't actually, so therefore doesn't actually solve the underlying problem. What's really interesting is that Global South leaders were really outspoken about the need for debt cancellation mm-hmm. at the start of the pandemic. But then the banks and the lenders started pushing, putting pressure on them, saying that if debt is cancelled, they won't be able to borrow again, uh, which of course isn't true. But also Global South governments started getting worried about how they will look be looked at by credit rating agencies if they you know, ask for debt restructuring or debt cancellation. But having said that, I've just you know, come back from uh, COP a couple of weeks ago from Glasgow, mm. and it was really interesting and encouraging to hear um, some southern governments speaking out again, uh, about debt again, um, and especially its interaction with the climate crisis. And so, you know, this, the Association of Small Island, Island States were pushing for debt language to be included in some of the draft text. This was all eventually removed, uh, which mm. is a real shame. But it's but it was good to see those, these countries pushing for um, debts to be mentioned. Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, mentioned how high levels of debt were, was now hampering climate action. And there was also a very powerful statement issued by the group of climate vulnerable countries calling for more action on debt because, um, yeah, high levels of unsustainable debt is, is hampering um, climate action. And eventually the final draft actually mentions debt as well. So I think all of these are encouraging signs that actually that there is some movement around this um, and some recognition of the issue around debt in these global spaces. Yeah, that's really interesting. And do you feel that these kind of changes in the conversations that we're having around debt at an institutional level are a new thing? Like, how have you seen that change in your work um, during your time at the Jubilee Debt Campaign? I think that the dominant narrative around debt um, is one that has been promoted uh, by rich governments and private creditors for a very, very long time. And I think this narrative is still very dominant, which is Mm. that debt is a problem, that when debt is a problem, that it's the fault of the debtor and, and not the lender. 
and that debts must be repaid at all costs, even at the expense of human rights and yeah. meeting the basic needs of a population. That's long been the dominant narrative um, in the popular in a public discourse. And as debt campaigners, we are constantly having to try to reframe that conversation and challenge this narrative that you know lenders are just as responsible for causing debt problems, especially when they have lent money recklessly, mm. and also that they should also bear some of the costs when debts cannot be repaid, that they also need to take a hit. It's interesting that we are seeing some changes in the rhetoric around the World Bank and the IMF. So, for example, last month, the World Bank released figures showing that the debt burdens of the 70, of 70 lower-income countries had increased to record levels. And the president of the World Bank, David Malpass, called for a plan to help ease the debt pressures, including debt reduction, more transparency and debt restructuring. And the leaders of the IMF and World Bank have also criticised private lenders for refusing to suspend debt and for refusing to cancel debt. But even though they've kind of put that rhetoric out, they themselves, like the IMF and World Bank themselves, haven't taken part in these schemes. Mm. Um, I mean, the IMF has cancelled a little bit of some of the debt payments to the poorest countries, but in general, they have not done their part. They haven't, and, and certainly not to match up to the rhetoric that they're calling on other lenders to do. And so, yes, even though I think it's interesting seeing the shift of some of the shift in rhetoric with the World Bank and IMF, especially in the con- context of the pandemic, um, what we really need to see this rhetoric translated into more concrete action. Otherwise, it is really um, just talk from the IMF and the World Bank. Definitely. And I think, you know, rhetoric in terms of global inequality and stereotyping narratives is very common. And I think in terms of mainstream media as well and representations around leaders across the global south often being framed as potentially less capable or more at risk of corruption, these are narratives that have their history in colonialism and justifying colonial intervention and extraction. So with that, could you talk to us a bit more about the recent debt scandal between Credit Suisse and Mozambique and how these forms of corruption are allowed to happen? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a really interesting case and it's sort of come back up very recently in the news. Um, but just a, yeah, just a little bit of background on this situation. Back in 2013, um, and 2014, um, three separate loans were given by Credit Suisse, uh, BT Capital and some other private banks to state owned companies in Mozambique, which totaled over $2 billion. This money was borrowed in secret. It was borrowed without the approval of the Mozambique parliament, which meant that essentially these loans were illegal. Some of this money was spent on a tuna fishing fleet and some speedboats. There's also $700 million that's completely unaccounted for. There's also around $200 million that went to bribes and kickbacks. And when these loans were discovered in 2016, it caused a financial crisis in Mozambique. The economy slowed down, the currency was devalued, the government could no longer pay its bills. And on hearing the loans, the IMF, World Bank and other donor countries also cut their aid to Mozambique. And this led to the loss of hundreds of millions of dollars a year for the country. And in the end, an estimated 2 million Mozambicans were pushed into poverty as a result of these hidden secretive loans that now um, look like they are going to cost the country up to $11 billion. At the same time, 
the spending on health and education was reduced, um, unemployment rose, and the cost of food and basic necessities also went up. In 2020, the campaigners in Mozambique achieved a major milestone when the government declared two of these loans void, as they didn't have the approval from the parliament. And then last month, this story came back in the news again, because the US and the UK authorities have collectively imposed a fine of 475 million on Credit Suisse. Um, and Credit Suisse has also agreed to cancel 200 million of the debt. But we are now, we're about to launch a new campaign action to call on the UK government to give the proceeds of the fine that they are receiving into um, the treasury to actually be given to the Mozambique people mm. um, because they are the ones who've been on the receiving end of the massive economic impact that this hidden debt has created. They were the, the people of Mozambique also had no say in it because it wasn't passed through their parliament. They also saw no loan whatsoever to their country. They saw no benefit to the loan for their country. And also, so, so yeah, so we're calling for the proceeds to be given actually to the people of Mozambique rather than it being Mm -hmm. kept um, in Her Majesty's Treasury here in London. And we also want to see the rest of the $2 billion of debt completely cancelled because this was a debt that should never have been given. And ultimately, we want to see, you know, the UK recognise its responsibility in this case because these were loans that were given under English law. The banks that were involved were UK based. And so, yeah, and also in future, any loans should actually be declared and made publicly available so that there is transparency in what loans are being taken out. Yeah, you mentioned there, you know, the impact, the sheer impact of this scandal on Mozambican people. And I think it's really important that we do centre the impact on the wider populations when it comes to debt, because often it's easy for us to look at debt at an institutional level and being something that governments are experiencing rather than understanding the kind of sheer impact of how it kind of trickles down on people's everyday mm-hmm. everyday lives. So can you explain a little bit more about that and that process and how debt does have that impact on day-to-day poverty and entrenching poverty globally. Yeah, I think you're right. Debt sovereign debt can often feel like a really abstract topic, Mm. um, but of course it has real-world impacts, as I've slightly alluded to in that Mozambique example. Countries with high debt repayments are likely to be cutting um, public spending, um, and and this really has a real impact on people's lives. Um, We did some research last year which showed that the Republic of Congo had seen huge cuts in public spending of well over 50% between 2015 and 2018, Um, and then Chad had also cut somewhere around 35%, um, and Mozambique had cut 21% um, of its public um, spending. Um, And these cuts are absolutely staggering amounts. Um, And of course, when you slash your public budget by 50% or by 35%, they will have real world consequences. Um, And so when you underinvest in things like education, uh, when you don't, when you are unable to invest in the universal healthcare system, these can have real long term impacts, both in the present for people's ability to access things like good education or to access healthcare when they need it. But it also has long term impacts on their future prospects for their life chances. Mm. So actually not getting education today affects you tomorrow and affects you for the rest of your life not getting access to to treat an illness that you might have today will you know potentially could have long-term ramifications and so that's kind of how the mechanism of debt 
um, really impacts um, people's actual lives on the ground and entrenches poverty in the global south. Um, and so I think this is essentially how you know how debt operates in that sense it it strips the ability of countries to invest in the things that really matter mm. um, things like health and education and instead um, prioritizes repayments to to creditors at the expense of these basic human rights yeah and i'd like to draw in on that more and focus on that more in terms of uh, the impact of debt and austerity on women in particular across the global south, but also austerity in the global north as well, because we see that due to women's disproportionate role in reproductive responsibilities and labour and gendered burdens of care responsibilities and their role in the home, you know, the impacts of debt are often felt most harshly by women. So, in that, why is a feminist perspective on debt useful when discussing development and radical solutions to poverty? Yeah, yeah, you're right. So debt undermines um, the ability of governments to meet their commitments on gender equality and um, undermines their ability to promote women's rights as well. We've talked a bit about how public services are disproportionately used by women, but also the cost of servicing this debt are also disproportionately borne by women. And the the funds that are borrowed are are very rarely spent um, in ways that prioritise women's rights. And so despite the importance of these decisions around public debt um, and its gendered impact, women's collective voices are often not included in the decision-making process processes around public debt and conditions um, on loans um, that um, are attached to lending from um, institutions like that World Bank and IMF. Um, they force governments to reduce their spending um, on public services, but also potentially um, forcing through cuts on services like social protection, um, healthcare, gender-based violence prevention and response services. Um, And so these all disproportionately impact women who are the main users of public services. Um, And then also these women are also, women also disproportionately work in these sectors as well. So it tends for women who work in healthcare or in, um, uh, or, or in, gender violence prevention schemes and so on. And so, for example, when a, when the healthcare sector lacks the resources, when, when you've not been able to, to divert your public spending towards investing in healthcare and you, know, you can't provide the level of healthcare needed for a population, and especially in the context of a pandemic, for example, mm. um, it's often women who end up substituting for these lack of services um, and instead have to provide, and they, women are the ones, women are the ones who have to provide that that healthcare in their own way yeah. for, for free so that that's providing care to a child or to a parent or to a sibling or to you know to, to a relative but this care is not free for the woman who's giving it yeah. um, they lose out either by losing time that they would have taken to do paid work they would have mm-hmm. or might be losing um, time in terms of their own education or their own leisure um, and so it can have really detrimental impacts on their own well-being, their status and their livelihoods. Also, it, it tends to be young women and elderly women who predominantly do low-paid um, care work um, and domestic work. And so cutting care services in the face of high debt servicing costs can also 
directly and disproportionately impact women's lives. And so that's why we push, when we push for the reform of the global financial system, we need to, you know, we need to, of course, end the dominance of lenders in this process who, who set these rules. Mm. And we also need to make sure that efforts are made within countries to ensure that, you know, new debts are spent in ways that support commitments on gender equality and women's rights, um, but also that the costs of serving these, these debts are, are shared more evenly. And also, I think this issue does intersect with other wider issues around gender inequality. Yeah such as um, the lack of female representation in political spaces yeah. and also improving de- democratisation of decision-making processes at all levels um, within the political system. So going back to COVID and the pandemic, we've seen many poorer nations, as you say, spending more on debt than healthcare services. What would you say are the main takeaways that we need to kind of draw on from the pandemic? So at the start of the pandemic, um, 64 countries were spending more on paying debts than they were on health. Mm. 45 countries were spending more on debt payments than on social protection. Um, and these countries include countries such as Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sierra Leone, Ethiopia, which are among the 10 most vulnerable countries, um, according to health indicators. And so debt actually is going to exacerbate these pre-existing health inequalities. Many of these countries also spend more paying debts than they do receiving overseas aid to support their health systems. So we did did a study last year which showed that 47 countries spend more on debt payments than they received in overseas aid for healthcare. And so debt undermines the ability of countries to scale up healthcare systems and social safety nets, and especially in the context of a pandemic. Um, And so this means that millions have been left at risk of death and ill health and poverty because of the role that debt plays and the interaction between debt and healthcare. And actually in the UK at the moment, you know, we've had our restrictions lifted for a while now and we've had population-wide vaccinations. But the pandemic is still raging in the global south because of the scandalous lack of vaccine access. Um, the World Health Organization's special envoy, Dr David Navarro, actually told an all-party parliamentary group of MPs recently that the world is is at risk that the that COVID is going to become a disease of poor nations. And so if nothing changes around global vaccine apartheid, um, countries are facing years and years of social and economic disruption that the pandemic brings. Mm. And so this will only exacerbate this the debt crisis that many countries are in. Um, and so in the face of multiple global crisis, you know, cancelling debt is the fastest way to divert much needed resources to fight the pandemic and um, and, and the climate crisis as well. Mm. Yeah, from what you're saying, you know, it's so clear that debt is really at the forefront of reinforcing and reproducing global inequality, but it is really an overlooked issue. And how is it possible for us to make this a more widely recognised issue when it comes to not only people that are already engaged in campaigning for social justice, but in society more generally? The issue of debt is often seen as a kind of niche technical subject. Mm. I think often as debt campaigners, we can be guilty of um, talking about it in very complex ways. But essentially, you know, debt is all about power. Um, mm. And especially when it comes to, you know, the power of creditors over 
um, debtors. And in the, and for um, Global South debt, there's a really strong interaction between debt and the development of colonialism, as we've already discussed. And there's a really strong interaction between debt justice and racial justice and climate justice. And so I feel like if we are going to talk more about debt to wider audiences, to, to talk about this in not just in niche um, circles, that we need to talk in the spaces of these intersections um, mm. because actually it has so much relevance in how we fight um, economic justice, how we fight for a fairer world, how we tackle um, the racial injustice in our global economy, um, how we tackle the climate crisis. So I feel like that's probably where we need to um, talk less in jargon and technical language yeah. um, uh, and then make the connections between a broader uh, with the broader movement to fight for economic justice in our world yeah I definitely feel like terms that are more rooted in kind of social concepts rather than economic ones are often easier to grasp I know that I personally struggled a lot with my economics module in university that was my least favorite (laughs) module and it can really put you off and it can make you write off debt as an issue Um, but it's a really really important one so thank you for that Um, I wanted to ask you, how can we mobilise an international movement for debt cancellation that is both resilient and successful? Because I think that often these movements have unfolded in sporadic and disrupted ways. So how can we ensure that we are being consistent, but also that our movement remains resilient towards challenges that it will face? Mm. Yeah, the, so the Jubilee movement, which I mentioned earlier, you know, it's part of our own origin story as an organisation. Um, but the the Jubilee movement has a powerful resonance with people who are active in media and politics and activism back in the 1990s. Um, and I've met a lot of people in my current role where people said to me, oh, yes, I remember the Jubilee movement. Um, that's when I first you know, started looking into these issues around economic justice. It's when I first started getting interested in internationalism. And it was a really broad global coalition, which was powered by faith groups across the world. And as I mentioned earlier, I think we do need to celebrate the big win that came out of that movement, which was $130 billion of debt counseled for 36 countries. Mm. Um, But we also need to look back and learn from that movement as well and and recognise actually how the movement eventually did get hijacked by big celebrities who ended up spinning a narrative around charity and saviorism and then they claimed the victory of the top line of debt cancellation but then sidelined the other demands from the wider global jubilee movement which was around transforming the global economy to prevent future crises Um, and so to build a resilient global debt movement today i think we need to keep pushing for the structural solutions that actually prevent the cycles of booms, um, the booms that we see in external lending, um, mm. but also um, the bust when we when economic conditions change or when economic shocks happen to push global South countries into a debt crisis. And we need to keep that structural narrative in there and those structural demands in there. Otherwise, you know, we could call for debt cancellation, but then end up in the same position 15 years later. Mm. So I feel we need to build resilience through what demands we we make. Um, So both in terms of the debt cancellation and restructuring, which can happen 
um, pretty quickly to divert resources to help countries deal with the multiple crises that we're facing in the world today, um, the pandemic and the climate crisis, um, but also to build um, longer term uh, demands and strategies around more transformative solutions. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've, we're really pushing for a global debt workout mechanism, which is an independent uh, process that helps to redress uh, the power imbalance that there is between creditors and debtors um, and provides uh, essentially a, a bankruptcy system for countries because at the moment um, you know we have a bankruptcy process for individuals and for companies but if you're a country you can't really go bankrupt and therefore that's why you have to keep paying your debts no matter mm. what even, you keep paying your debts even if it means undermining your own ability to deliver uh, basic human rights for your people and then yeah and then a bit of what I was saying earlier about making demands and making connections and um, between um, movements as well and uh, seeing the intersections of our demands for economic justice and climate justice racial justice health justice mm-hmm. um, because by doing that we we demonstrate the relevance of debt in uh, so many of today's challenges yeah we take debt out of that kind of theoretical um, sphere and actually relate it to people's lives yeah. um, and and actually, and then and then expose how debt has been used as a way to create and sustain more power for wealthy governments corporations and and elites individuals and finally for my last question you know as you've acknowledged it is hard often to imagine and articulate a what an alternative would look like when neoliberalism has become so entrenched in our day-to-day lives and so mainstream by governments and their commitments so what would an ethical and just economic system look like um in terms of debt um i think the vision that we are working towards is the independent international debt workout mechanism uh, so this is the something that we would set up under the auspices of, for example, the UN that would actually potentially transform how the debt system works and could prevent reckless lending, um, it could prevent unsustainable debt accumulation. Um, and, and ultimately, the mechanism will help to address the power imbalance between debtors and creditors that we have in our global economy. Um, that's specifically on debt. But um, of course, we know the we know that the problem of debt and why countries need to borrow in the first place is connected with all these other injustices mm. um, that we have in our world. And ultimately, it's connected with the fact that we have a global economy that um, ha- has been designed to maintain the economic interests of wealthy governments and their corporate allies. And so as economic justice campaigners, in addition to fighting for debt justice and that vision of a debt workout mechanism, we also need to fight for, um, you know, we need to fight against um, unfair trade deals um, that elevate corporate power over governments and public services. Um, We also need to fight for um, tax justice, um, fighting for to ensure that, um, you know, fight against tax avoidance and evasion, uh, which denies governments um, much needed funds and fight against the power of the financial sector as well, because the financial sector has so much ability to write the rules that we have in our global system. Uh, so when we can orientate some of these levers of economic power towards human well-being and dignity, rather than um, letting the drive for profiteering and corporate control be the all-encompassing driving force that we have right now in our global mm. economy, then I think that's how we start to move in that direction uh, of a more just and ethical economic system. 
that's a really great note to end on. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today on A World to Win. It was really great to speak to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Adele. I really enjoyed it.